0: you're listening to live from city lights a podcast of readings and archives from city lights books and publishers to learn more visit www.citylights.com
1: greetings everybody peter maravellis here on behalf of city lights booksellers and publishers and the city lights foundation i'd like to welcome you to city lights live the virtual reading series that began during the pandemic and follows in the footsteps of our in In-Star calendar. We continue to feature the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving toward the summer season. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land. As many of you know, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish new works in the areas of poetry, literature and translation, and nonfiction with a progressive political outlook. It is especially meaningful to us when we are able to celebrate the launch of one of our own books. Tonight, we are thrilled to have with us once again, Gabrielle Aleman celebrating the publication of her new short fiction collection titled Family Album. It is the stellar follow-up to her acclaimed English-language debut, Poso Wells. Both books are published by City Lights, I might add. Ms. Aleman writes exquisite fiction. With family albums, she traverses territory that teases the tropes of hard-boiled fiction, satire, the adventure narrative, to kind of recast discussions of national identity. She merges pop culture with folklore, exploring lesser known episodes in contemporary Ecuadorian history. Family Album introduces us to a rich cast of characters whose intimate stories open up into a vista of Ecuador's place on the world stage. So it is really a great pleasure and an honor that City Lights is able to celebrate this remarkable and really finely crafted collection. Gabrielle Alamon is a native of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. She currently resides in Quito, Ecuador. She is a member of the Bogota 39, a group of the most important up and coming writers in Latin America in the post boom generation. She is the recipient of numerous awards for her critical essays on literature and film and has received critical acclaim for her fiction. City Lights is honored to be able to publish her new work. Joining her this evening in conversation, we're delighted to have back in the house our dear literary comrade Oscar Villalon, the managing editor at the literary journal Ziziva, He's played an important part in the literary fabric of the city for many years now. He served as former book editor at San Francisco Chronicle. He was also a member of National Book Critics Circle. Uh, His writing has appeared in Freeman's, The Believer, Lit Hub, amongst other publications, will be featuring Oscar in a Zizava event during the summer. So please keep an eye peeled on our calendar. So it is a great honor and a special occasion for us to have Gabrielle Aleman and Oscar Villalon gracing our virtual halls a
0: very warm welcome to you both. Welcome to City Lights. Thank, thank you, you, Peter. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. And also joining us too is is Dick Cluster, uh, who's uh, translated most of the stories in this collection and as well as uh, Gabriela's novel, uh, Posa Wells. Dick, good to see you. You too. Uh, I thought before we get into the conversation, I thought we should start with a reading from the book. Gabriela, would you be so good as to uh, uh, start us off?
2: Sure. Um, Well, good evening. I'm I'm really happy to be here and there and everywhere. (laughs) Um, I'm going to be reading from a story called Custom Party. Each story in the book uh, has to do with something that would be inside a photo album. So I'll just start. I looked closely at the videos and it was a fact. Every one of El Santo's speaking parts in those six movies was dubbed. His lips were out of sync with the sound. Maybe he didn't remember his lines or maybe it was a clever way to hide the fact that different voices were doing the talking. That was why everything she told me helped to confer a certain degree of order on things and that what I had discovered in the Mexicali newspaper eight years before, while searching for a detail from early 1976, finally made sense. It was there that I ran across the tiny article about a border area wrestling match featuring Black Shadow versus El Cabernario Galindo and El Santo versus Blue Demon in Tijuana. The article mentioned that the fight would be restaged on the other side of the border, so as to promote El Santo's movies in the US drive-ins. It would have been nothing more than a curious fact if I hadn't known that El Santo was in Ecuador filming a well-publicized picture, El Santo versus the kidnappers, during those same months. I jotted the fact in my notebook, photocopied the newspaper page, went back to what turned out to be a fruitless search in the archives, and later forgot what I had read. Or not quite forgot but decided that the reporter had read the wire wrong or that the filming in Ecuador had taken place later in that year. Years went by before a business trip to Mexico gave me the chance to buy a magazine collection that a friend had asked me to get for her son. During the return flight board, I leave through the magazine. One of them had a complete filmography of the wrestling stars of the sixties and seventies. The research team was huge. But given the number of films, I doubted that anyone had taken the trouble to compare the dates of production and the premieres. I did take the trouble because the curious fact from the Mexicali paper surfaced again in my brain. I discovered that El Santo made six films in 76. You'll say that this was easily possible because those B movies were of doubtful quality, usually filmed in three weeks and assembled more than produced. Okay. But of the six, one was shot in Istanbul, another in Quito and Guayaquil, the next in San Juan, another in Guatemala City and Antigua, another in Mexico City, and the last one at Machu Picchu. In that same year, remember El Santo had been in the neighborhood of Tijuana for some weeks. And according to the archives of the Mexican Wrestling Federation, he headlined more than three matches a month in arenas all across across the country throughout the year. I photocopied the magazine before giving it to my friend. It's an obvious story, as obvious as the fragility of a house of cards. That's why no one wants to touch it. But doesn't it make sense? We're talking about the King Midas of film, the guy who packed movie houses all over the Americas, who filled arenas for his fights, who made cast registers jingle, and who wore a mask. This was the era of the decline of Churubusco Studios of feverish demands by the film unions and the rapid growth of television conjoined with the ban on televised wrestling matches. It was also the onset of old age for the stars of the golden era. Come on, wasn't anyone going to think of this? Tell me no producer did. How much did El Santo charge? Too much. Using a double would be a deal too good to resist. Think about it. If someone claimed that wasn't really him on the screen, that it wasn't him filling the coffers of Pelimex distributors in Honduras, Panama, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia, then who was it? The answer would require taking off the mask, revealing his identity, destroying the mystery, renouncing the myth. In defense of what? Honor, truth, and certain principles? Accusing Pelimex was the same thing as incriminating the PRI, Mexico's governing party, which financed the distributor. No. It was a perfect scheme. Perfect because it fit right in with the original caprice of the mask. There was a story in all of this. It didn't have to do with corruption in the wrestling Federation, nor the excesses of an industry that ended up destroying itself, and less so with the unmasking of El Santo. No, it was something else. I just didn't know what. Discovering it, it didn't become an obsession, I didn't hunt down retired agents or stalk the directors and screenwriters of the movies in which El Santo had starred. But still, when I could, when I'd be passing through Mexico, I would make certain calls, set up interviews, buy copies of the films that interested me. Meanwhile, I worked in public relations for a continental radio network, which gave me access to levers of power that one can use to come close to the truth. I heard some stories which no one let me record, while a friend of a friend told me some other things of interest. It was too late to interview the masked one himself and his son refused to tell me anything, even if he knew, which I doubted. More than one El Santo, please. And then by chance, while I was negotiating a contract with a shampoo company, looking through all the footage that had promoted the brand, I saw her, a Venezuelan girl washing her long black hair, under a paradisical waterfall in the Costa Rican jungle, Miss Carabobo of 1975, I later found out. She was the same woman who had starred in the Ecuadorian El Santo film. It took me more over a year to find her. She had stayed in Ecuador in a mountain village up north. When I arrived in Kawasqui, I had to spend some hours searching her out because the person I was describing was the girl I saw in the movie not the matron, so very beautiful, with graying hair and skin tempered by the sun, who stood before me at last. Although she'd had children, now she lived alone. I talked with her while she was feeding her chickens. Her answers followed the same distrustful tone that had characterized all my interviews, legitimizing all of my suspicions. Why was everyone so nervous if there was nothing to hide? I never thought that what to my eye was simple questioning about a superhero could put the entire past of my interviewees to the test in a way that could cut through lives like some corrosive poison. The past as a palimpsest, who would break it open exposing its layers to look for something that no longer existed? None of this occurred to me. At the time, all I saw was the woman's uncomfortable answers confirmed my suspicions. Too many times she asked me the same thing. Señora, why are you interested in this story? She didn't believe me when I said I had no special interest. Since I had no more believable answer prepared, better put, since I hadn't constructed a plausible lie without gapping holes in it, she got rid of me after telling me a few minor details I already knew. That the film was shot in the Iñakito racetrack, that she played a cabaret singer, that El Santo was the star, and that Ernesto Alban had the comic lead. I thanked her and went looking for some place to spend the night.
0: Thank you, Gabriela. Um, uh, Before uh, before we get into the the conversation and ask my first question, I just want to expand further on uh, Peter's introductory remarks about the book itself. Um, The book is called Family Album. And as Gabriela was saying, each story bears a title, uh, referring to the various milestones in the existence of a family, uh, celebrations, trips, and other momentous occasions. It could be read in one sitting, but don't be fooled. These are richly layered narratives that invite us to reread them as soon as we finish them. The structures play with time and characters and motivations are incrementally and precisely revealed. Yes, these stories are short, but they telescope in depth because they're textured by history and interiority and intrigue. Uh, the stories range in settings, uh, excuse me, in settings from the Galapagos Islands and in Ecuador's interior to Buenos Aires and the US and Mexico and Puerto Rico. Uh, they are set in the 20th century, yet they feel like they belong to a more contemporaneous era. The stories here are inhabited by scoundrels, and the people who have to deal with those scoundrels. And always there's an atmosphere of tantalizing mystery, never quite getting the full picture of events and people, but perhaps just enough to let us know that we're at the limit of what we can ascertain for sure. So in speaking of events and people, uh, as in the excerpt you just read, I, um, I think we get a sense of what I believe are two of the biggest themes in the collection. Encounters between Ecuadorians and the world at large, either at home or abroad, in narratives imagined around actual people and historical events. So my first question is, were those two areas you wanted to explore when you initially conceptualized this book or were those themes something that presented themselves in the course of the writing?
2: Thanks, uh, Oscar. First of all, it's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, um, likewise. I loved your magazine when I got a copy of it. Uh, it's wonderful. And I was so glad to have one of my stories published in it.
0: Oh, thank (laughs) you. wonderful. i to have you in
2: there. (laughs) Um, When I thought of Family Album from the onset, I had the title, so um, I knew that I was going to have, I I didn't know at the beginning how many stories, but that all of the stories that were inside this collection had to do with something that had happened in Ecuador, Mm -hmm. not necessarily a big historical event, uh, rather, Uh, something to do with popular culture, something to do with minor chapters of uh, history uh, that usually doesn't get recorded in history books, Mm -hmm. but that uh, circulates through word of mouth. And and in there, I knew that there had to be something to do with film, because Ecuador never had a film industry. Hmm. But we're set in the northern part of South America, and, and it's uh geographically it's interesting in the influences we have in our culture because we receive all the mexican rancheras music Mm -hmm. um boleros film but we also receive because we're in 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 what would be the center of the whole america's uh, Mm -hmm. north central and south we receive the great influence from argentina also so tangos the wrestling from Argentina, which was Titanes en el Ring, which is completely different from um, El Santo and and the Wrestling Federation in Mexico. But there was this element, a strange element in the 1970s when uh, both of these traditions or or big uh, production companies from Argentina and Mexico uh, were starting to break. They were starting to not have that much money for their productions. And that's when El Santo appeared in in uh, film history in in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that um, there was this conjunction of something I mentioned in the story that uh, wrestling couldn't be shown on television. You would have to go to the the Coliseum to the arenas to see it, what but you that? could see it on film. Um, and and it was interesting that the producers decided to. Uh, present El Santo next to vampire women and werewolves and Martians, and the, the, the great uh, idea that they had is that they looked for the most important actors or comedians from each country in South America, and they teamed them up with El Santo. So when he got to Ecuador, he made a movie with Ernesto Alban, who was the leading comedic man of of the theater and film in Ecuador, the the small uh, productions that were made in Ecuador at that time. So automatically it became a phenomenon in Ecuador and in Mexico and in all the countries that uh, received wrestling films from Mexico. So when I was thinking of of what story to tell through through the figure of El Santo in Ecuador, Mm -hmm tied in with popular culture, the mask was something that that had to be present all the time. And it's something that that has to do with all the stories, as you were mentioning, the idea of of Ecuador being uh, in the periphery, but also at the center of world events. So it's a mask that Ecuadorians can put on and become great wrestlers, or can put on and become an important part of the Second World War, Ideological battles that were going on with Germany and Japan in um, in the Pacific, uh, which is one of the stories that 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 have to that deal with Galapagos. So it's this idea of Ecuador coming in and out of of various scenarios in 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 the in world politics in in popular culture, not only Ecuadorian popular culture, but in 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 a wider idea of, of Latin American popular culture. And then there was also the element uh, in this story. Uh, I only read the first three pages, but there's the idea of of um, how popular culture, apart from being uh, a very much alive thing that that uh, crosses everybody in, in different mm-hmm. classes in the country, is also very much uh, seeped in misogyny in some ways in, in Latin American popular culture. So the idea of the wrestler, the idea of toxicity of of hyper-masculinity is tied up in this film with a woman who falls in love with this masked man who she can't even see, but who represents something. So it was a way of of, uh, talking about um, a hard subject to breach, which is violence and abuse against women in, in Latin America and in Ecuador, particularly through the eyes of, of a very popular figure in film uh, until this day, and, and not only in film, but still uh, very much seen in in uh, arenas and poliseums, and not only in Mexico, but in different countries in Latin America.
0: I, you know, Following up on that idea or the, the metaphor of the mask and um, what that represents, uh, what I found, one of the things I found particularly engrossing about the collection is how, um, because you're telling these stories through the eyes of various Ecuadorians, and given what you just said about uh, Ecuador, we see North Americans and Europeans in these various encounters in a very, uh, in a different light, let's put it that way. Um, A couple of things stand out. One is you get a sense of this untrammeled sense of entitlement (laughs) of of people from North America and Europe who basically, uh, not all of them, but definitely some, who can go wherever they want and do whatever they want, uh, and uh, also though this this um, you know this this gaze that you put upon them, uh, it is both pitiless and tender. Does that sound right to you?
2: Yeah, I mean one one of the stories is about I, I wrote this collection ten years ago, mm-hmm. um, and when. Uh, Lorena Bobbitt came into the news late 90s. It was very much set in terms of uh women against men in, in the press in Ecuador. And and in some ways, it was in, in a weird sense, it was also framed as uh an immigrant against the Marine. Because if you remember, John Wayne Bobbitt was mm. a Marine, an ex-Marine. And at that time in the 90s, if you remember also, or or people who, who didn't know what happened in the news in the U.S. Um, Lorena Bobbitt was not that well spoken of. It, the cameras were not on her side. No,
0: there, there they, wasn't really a context for what she did.
2: Re, right. So she became sort of the, the, a verb to, to, to talk about what happened, right? And um, maybe a year or two years ago or three years with the pandemic, I, I don't know anymore, maybe it was four years ago, <laughs> there was a new documentary about Lorena Bobby, re- seeing her through the eyes of the 21st century, and she comes off completely different. Uh, the circumstances will happened, uh, but what she represented at that moment. But, but when I, I lived through the 90s and then I, I re saw what, what happened with the documentary, but I was always fascinated by uh, the figure of John Wing Bobby because after. Uh, what happened, um, he became a, a, a porn star. He also became, uh, he went to Las Vegas and, and set up a church there. And he he traveled all over the, the world showing these X-rated movies that he made. And um, another reference to, to movies in this book is um, uh, something that happened in the 60s, early 70s in Argentina, when there was a dictatorship in Argentina, it was also a time of of opening up of uh, of the first nudes in film. And there was a very strict uh, censorship law because of the military that was tied up with the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So there was uh, a woman who did the first nude in Latin America, who was called Isabel Sarli. And Sarli uh, put out Three, four, five movies a year during the late sixties, early seventies. She worked with her husband Armando Bo, and um, what happened was that they were very popular and and they made a lot of money for the production companies. But they had to go through the censorship, and usually, what happened in 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 this in, in the cutting rooms is that they cut out any scenes of nudity, anything that had to do with sexual encounters. And um, a film director who interviewed Isabel Sarli in the early 2000s found that she kept all the, all the stills that had been cut from her f- movies. So she, she, she gave this to him and he made a documentary about this.
0: Really interesting the
2: documentary with the stills because he not only speaks about her movies, about censorship, but also about what was going on with the dictatorship and film in using these stills that were cut out. Um, so what I did in this movie, in, in this um, story where John Wayne Bobbitt appears in Argentina, is that he shows up in a movie theater because it's so hot um, and, <laughs> and he needs some air conditioning. Air conditioning is something that uh, all restaurants and cafeterias and, and um, places, public places, places in, in in Argentina don't have, but films, uh, movie theaters do. So he walks in to get away from the heat and he's seeing this documentary about uh cut penises and nudity, and he just starts freaking out. And this old he, he woman gets triggered. is triggered. It's triggered, yes. So so it was a way of talking about everything that had happened between Lorena Bobbitt and John Wayne Bobbitt through the eyes of um of this moment of of recognizing a trauma and uh, being, um, in some ways, um, taken care of by an old Argentinian woman in her house. Well, and this brings up a lot of different subjects in the story, but mostly it's, it's told through uh, irony, it's told through laughter, it's told through, um, through a way of avoiding the, the explicit uh, nature of the violence that was, um, that occurred against Lorena and that was that uh, John Wayne Bobbitt was involved in it uh, in the 90s. You know,
0: so, so Sarley and Bobbitt appear in the story called Honeymoon. And that is also, uh, we see in that story, something we see, I think, it, again, throughout the, the rest of the collection, something which I found, again, very um, compelling, is that even in all these stories, uh, even in the face of violence and venality of all sorts, we see how characters are animated by warmth and by the openness of strangers i mean they they wind up connecting to each other through what seems to me to be sort of the prism of mortality as of uh, to know that you know so much of life is built upon happenstance is you think is there something to knowing how vulnerable we are that creates opportunities for intimacies and I, i maybe it's too much to say and you know in turn a better way to live but at least to expose that thing which might have been good about you?
2: Um, I, I, I'm, I'm speaking from New Orleans right now. I'm in this beautiful studio of, of a great Mexican-American photographer, Josephine Sacobo, and I can't not think of, of a phrase by Tennessee Williams, which I heard when I was 14, <laughs> and it's in my head all the time. Um, the kindness of strangers. Um, I've always uh, done a lot of traveling, and i found in my life personally that there there exists this kindness of strangers. There's a family that one creates when one doesn't have one's own family around, and that sometimes it's it's these happenstance uh, that you were mentioning occurrences that that put us in contact with someone, and usually we we enter in a connection with strangers when we're vulnerable when when. We discover that we can't go on with maybe somebody just giving you a hand to get up or or, uh, saying something that will make you believe that you can continue. And that's what happens. And you're totally right, Oscar. It's the first time that I'm thinking about this, but that connection is there throughout the the collection. In the first story, there's there's this man um, who winds up in the Galapagos, uh, uh, a person who's dying from Mm. lung cancer but he wants to um, learn to scuba dive before that. And actually it's not even the scuba diving, he wants to have contact with someone and he makes friends with uh, a person who works at a bar in Galapagos and who is also um, an instructor for scuba diving. And there's this connection built in uh, that has nothing to do, these two people that wouldn't know each other in any other circumstance meet and become uh, great friends in in a very short amount of time. Um, The beginning of this story of El Santo, everything is triggered by uh, this woman who's buying a magazine for a friend's Mm -hmm. son. Uh, So there's a lot of of that idea of of, um, friendship tied up with the family, Uh, of, of constructing new families as you go along, of finding circumstances that can seem strange to be completely normal also because Ecuador is a strange place for for people who don't know it it would mm. seem that it's hard to enter into the logic of it but once you're there the logic is totally logical <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: even if it sounds very obvious but but there's this there's this idea all the time and I, and again going back to the idea of the mask when when you're with strangers or with people that you've just met you can put on a mask and you can take it off whenever you want because you you know that you you don't have to put on a show for anyone because you're probably never going to see these people again so you could be at your most truthful at your most vulnerable at your most open uh, and um and you're totally right Oscar <laughs> thanks for pointing this out Oh
0: well, no I, Dick you were, you were going to say please and then you,
3: so you have stories that go in the other direction too like the one of the Ecuadorian woman and her adventure in San Juan, mm. right? Where the strangers maybe are not as kind, but but maybe you could say something about that, about how you also have, you know, what is it that, that the Caribbean represents to an Ecuadorian? And then you have the story that's narrated by an American, right? The family outing. Right.
2: Well, family outing starts out with someone in Louisiana, uh, and that's the obvious connection is because I, I've lived in New Orleans. I love New Orleans. Um, thankfully, I have uh, uh, an extension of my family with friends here in New Orleans. So I come and go uh, lately a lot. And when I was trying to write about Ecuador, I could not not mention Louisiana in some way. <laughs> um, and that way was, was the connection between the... Um, oil, uh, all, all the um, drilling that goes on in the coast of Louisiana, and that connected to the discovery of petroleum in the 1960s and 70s in the um, Amazon in Ecuador. And that's that that opens up something that also appears in the story, and, and I think you were mentioning also before, Oscar, um, is this place where, where it's not, It's it, in some ways it's sort of a, a frontier town. It's a, it's a place at that time, at least in the 60s and 70s, it was a place where people from anywhere could come and there was no law. Mm. And it was a place that things that shouldn't have been occurring, occurred. And that is also connected to, to what you were mentioning, Dick, um, this story about this woman from Ecuador who winds up in San Juan, the connection there is because she starts having a conversation with a man that had been in in uh, in mines in the south of Ecuador in the 1980s. Um, there was uh, a discovery that there was there was gold in the south of mm-hmm. of, um, of Ecuador in Loja in, in Nambija. So that's how these two characters get in contact. And it turns out that this man was trying to send um, drugs over. Um, there, there's a lot of women in jails in Ecuador uh, that are called mulas that just take like small amounts of drugs and, and if they're caught, they they uh have to be in jail for a lot of time in in in, in uh different countries and who wind up there not because they're they're trying to uh, be involved in this uh, illegal trade, but because they have um, circumstances that make them need to um, accept this this um, this way of earning a living. Mm-hmm. But in this story, it's it's not that she falls in love with a man that asks her to take something to San Juan, and in her mind, or in 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 the mind of of uh, people from the Andes, at least in in Ecuador. The Caribbean is a place of liberty. It's a place of, mm. of uh, heat. It's a place of disinhibition. It's a place of of um, where, where sensuality is much more present in the uh, Andes. It's very cold, it's very high up. The sun comes out at six in the morning and sets at six o'clock in the afternoon. And the, the Caribbean is exuberant. Huh? Mm. So uh, it's a way of this woman adopting the mask of a Caribbean woman and losing her inhibitions and deciding to to take some decisions that she wouldn't have if she had only stayed in Ecuador. So that also goes back to the idea that uh, Ecuador is very present in in the collection, but it's also the idea of the connections between Ecuador and the outer world. Ecuador and and, um, this imaginary of the Caribbean, Ecuador and, and the image of of the possibilities of a better future with the U.S., Argentina and the idea of of culture in in the Southern Cone compared to what we we always think is is a smaller um, uh, tradition in in literary terms and film terms in in, in culture, and it's also this vessel of receiving um, the first story uh, in in the. Um, Collection is about this man who, who wants to learn to scuba dive because he wants to find the treasure of the boat that Selkrik was in, which was a pirate who had ransacked Guayaquil and went to um, divide the booty between all the pirates in Galapagos. And then um, this is a true story. They went on to the Eastern Island, and Selkrik stayed in the in the Eastern Islands, and the ship uh, continued on its course. And, um, was later, uh, it went down because it was in very bad shape. But Selkric is the figure that Robinson Crusoe was based on. So there's this connection between the first modern novel and Ecuador in some strange way, uh, (laughs) because there's the connection with Selkric and the Galapagos. So there's always uh, at least like a mention or a wink to the reader that Ecuador is part of the world, it's part of a larger tradition, it's part of a literary tradition, it's part of a culture that is in only um, secluded in this up in the Andes, in Quito, or in the middle of the Pacific with the Galapagos or the Amazon, where it's kind of a black hole where nobody knows what's really going on there because there's so much money uh, to be had with the oil trade. So so Ecuador in some ways is something to fill in and something to to go out. Um, So all the time when I was writing the book, I was thinking of of making stories that were interesting, but also with this backdrop of Ecuador appearing in one way or another as as the possibility of something different.
0: Yeah. um... Before I bring you in, Dick, I just going to say really quickly, hearing you talk about this, Gabriella, I keep keep thinking maybe it's true that the the group that gets noticed least is the group that notices the most. Um, Dick, I wanted to ask you uh, a couple of things. One was how did you first come across uh, Gabriella's work and then uh, what about it made you want to translate? And by that, what I mean is I know how hard the work is to translate. So it's you know it's definitely um, a labor of love.
3: I first came across it in um, Havana, actually, at the Havana Book Fair in 2014 or some such year, um, when a Cuban writer who I translate, an editor named Aida Barr, said, oh, I'm presenting a novel. She's she also an editor of the publishing house in Santiago de Cuba. She said, I'm presenting a novel that you love, and the first chapter of it is a perfect, uh, I also write mystery novels, or did. She said, the first chapter of it is a perfect like noir, um, Mystery novel opening. And that was Postal Wells. And uh, I um, read it on the airplane on the way back. And I was just amazed by the kind of mashup of genres that was in it and its mixture of humanity and politics and humor and pop culture and all these things. So I thought this would be great fun to translate. God knows if anyone would ever publish it and this is why we're eternally grateful to city lights because they will publish things like that so that was um what first made me want to do it and it was great fun and challenge to translate all the different genres and mashups and conversations between mexicans and ecuadorians and all that in there so then i said i'd like to see some stories uh, and that was when gabriella started sending the stories and um the stories are difficult to translate because each one is so different, each one is in the voice of such a different narrator, mm. and it involves. So sometimes, you're, when you're, when I'm translating a writer, I'm like imitating their voice. But Gabriela has so many voices that each one required sort of starting over again. What's the particular way that this voice is is, is ironic? Mm.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I can. I, I could I can infer that. Uh, from you know, for me and her work uh, in, in, from your translations, which are wonderful, by the way, Dick. Um, you know uh, that these uh, this, there's a lot. As I was saying before earlier, these are very they're con- they're extremely enjoyable and entertaining narratives, but they are complex. Um, there's a lot going on in there, and I can imagine you know that just ups the ante in terms of what you have to do, in terms of whatever choices you have to make, in terms of how you're going to convey a certain feel of, that you get in Spanish, and how how you how will you evoke that you know, in English. Um, And you brought something about the noir, which is because I think there's elements of that in this collection as well, at least certainly about crime, certainly about, for lack of a better word, what we could call, you know, the evil in in people's hearts. And I want to get back to that story, family outing, if you don't mind, Gabriella, because it's just, you know, so it's based on the actual 1956 massacre, right, of Christian missionaries by Ecuadorian indigenous people who you know, God bless them, that really had, didn't want anything to do with them. they They didn't ask to be proselytized. Um, and uh, it's told by, as you're saying by this um, uh, I guess he worked in an oil rig, this New Orleans guy, this American. And there is a, a a passage on and by the way, and they hire him, and I think boy, what a what a wonderful a metaphor. Uh, they they hire him to basically be the muscle to to get his hands dirty because God forbid they as as, as good uh, missionaries get their hands dirty. If things should go south, and uh, there was a passage in there that, that that I thought be worth sharing. At one point, um, uh, the narrator, sort of assessing the situation of how things are going, he says of the of, of his employers, "If they were devoting their lives to the pursuit of souls, I was devoting mine to the pursuit of despair. We were two sides of the same coin. If they had realized this, they would have tried to part ways to separate their purity from my mud." but wouldn't they have eventually figured this out? That the two sides rub against the same skin when the coins are held tightly in the fist. And what struck me about this is that I'm not so sure the quote unquote developed world has figured that out yet.
2: It was pretty obvious in the 1960s in Ecuador. Um, Ecuador until that point had been mostly dependent on, on selling cocoa. And it was a small economy. And then in the 1950s, geologists started coming to Ecuador to explore the Amazon region. And by the 60s, they had figured out that there were vast amounts of oil there. And it would seem that it was a coincidence, but uh, we would tend not to think that when uh, missions started coming at the same time as the oil companies. So they would in some ways open the roads for people to come in. Not, not only uh, people from the from outside of Ecuador, but also uh, for um, people coming in to, to take the land, to start planting crops, to start building roads for the military to start having outposts, for the government to start having uh, offices in the Amazon region. Um, but what happened in those first few years was like I was saying before, anybody could come in. It was like the far West in terms of of what the far West represents in that, um, it was take what you can. Um, And the Waurani at that point um, had not looked to have contact. They had uh, gotten further and further away from the roads that were uh, being constructed and uh, these missionaries who were very young at the time and who who had arrived in Ecuador without speaking Spanish or any indigenous language, and who had set up camp in, in these houses that were built in the middle of the Amazon with cement, and who were basically getting bored with, with having uh, nothing to do, decided that that it would be a great idea to approach these people who had had no contact with any other religious groups. What happened was was something that was reported in Life magazine in in the 1950s, when Life magazine was this incredible uh, resource for um, the news in in the US. And I found this magazine when I was doing some research for, for something else. And I discovered these amazing photographs they had sent um, because there were no military posts at that time in, in the Ecuadorian Amazon, the U.S., uh, the closest U.S. base was in Panama. So they came mm-hmm. in in helicopters from Panama to look for these uh, the corpses of these missionaries who had been speared. And at that point, it was the moment that you knew that something was gonna change terribly in the Amazon because now there was permission, because these savages had killed these sure. missionaries um, to bring in the military, to bring in the companies, to bring in the possibility of jailing these people, of pushing them out, of shooting at them, of getting rid of them basically, because they they weren't civilized. And it's been a, a fight since the sixties and seventies where supposedly Ecuador was gonna become a very rich country with all this oil. And the, Poorest zones of Ecuador are still in the Amazon region because that prosperity didn't go to the people who inhabit the Amazon region, but it went to the companies and that money left. Um, and we all know what happened with with the environment, with mm-hmm. with the ongoing trial with Chevron mm-hmm. and Texaco and all the cancers in the in in Ecuador. In, children and and everybody who lives near the water that uh, passes through these oil refineries. So um, it was impossible not to put my foot in there and and, and smell that there was a story there. And and now, actually, there's a much bigger story that stems from this beginning. And I'm writing a new novel that has to do with the sister of one of the men that feared one of the missionaries. who was the person who spoke uh, Quichua, Waurani, Spanish and English, and in some ways opened the doors for what we would call modernity in Ecuador. Wow. Uh, Very mixed, very conflicting, uh, but also fascinating. So um, when I found out uh, that that this had happened, I, I found actual footage. If you go into YouTube, And in that crazy rabbit hole that YouTube is, you can find a 10 minute clip of uh, these missionaries landing on this strip of of beach by a river. And one of the men that comes uh, curious and and the missionaries give him something and then they ask him if he wanted to go up in the plane. And he, he's, he flies in the plane with the missionaries. The plane descends. He goes back into the jungle. And three hours later, he comes out again. And uh, seven of these missionaries are speared. Um, that's the simple story. It's much more complex than that. But you can see those images on YouTube. So um, that's something that also occurs in, in the book. There, there are moments when you would think that I've made up uh, characters who are real, and some of the real characters you would think I made up—they're um,
0: <laughs> all in there. <laughs> so I'm gonna. If, can I summon a uh, uh, Peter Morales out of the ether? Um, Peter, there you are. Yeah. Yes, would you, would you would you be so good as to carry us into the Q and A portion, folks? Sure. Uh, those who are right now attending and watching this, please. Uh, 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 Peter will uh, will present your questions to Gabriella and, and to Dick.
1: So the first salvo comes from Joel Katz, uh, and this is directed to Dick Cluster. What were the two greatest challenges you faced when translating the stories of Gabriela Alamon?
3: One of them is there are these extended metaphors that either begin or end a number of the stories. For instance, um, the one about El Santo Hmm. ends very near the end. It says, uh, what I did know, the only thing I knew was that what she told me had the shape of an arrow and that whatever I could speculate about its trajectory would only lead me to a target of my own invention. And then it goes on about the arrow, the path of the arrow, the vacuum in between the one and the other. And it's an extended metaphor for what you do and don't understand what's real and not real behind the mask. And metaphor is that extended present a real challenge to translation because the translation has to both be visualizable, right? Like the original metaphor was, and convey the same like larger metaphorical meaning. It's very hard to recreate that in a different language. You can often represent the um, the physical thing that's being described, but then you lose the metaphorical one or the other way around. And there were a lot of those in in this book. So that was one big challenge, I think, in this book, different than others, aside from the thing I said about the voices. Another interesting thing is that um, I've translated other writers who, who are translators from Spanish to English before, but I've never translated anyone whose English is as fluent and practically bilingual as Gabriela's. And so we did a lot of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, which Joel, since Joel and I are in a translator's workshop, you will recognize what those conversations are like. Well but if we do it this way, well, but if we do it that way. So that was an interesting both challenge and advantage of working with Gabriela on this book.
1: So I have a comment from Dominic, a great passage regarding the fixer sent to control the indigenous people by the missionaries. He found that very interesting. Uh, I have a, um, let's see, comment from Donna, actually it looks like a question. I'm looking forward to reading your book, Gabriela. Can you also recommend other contemporary Ecuadorian authors to read either in Spanish or translated to English?
2: Well, there's a, a rich literary tradition. Uh, actually, I have a publishing house with my one of my brothers and a friend called El Fakir. And El Fakir is the name of what we consider the best 20th century writer of Ecuador, who's Cesar Davila Andrade. Uh, He was not only a poet, but a short story writer. So whatever you can find by Cesar Davila Andrade is incredible. Um, Another great writer uh, who's still alive and she's published more than probably 30 books is Alicia Yanes cosillo She's found in English also. Uh, Argentina Chiribogas, another uh, Ecuadorian writer from uh, Esmeraldas. Um, and then more contemporary, there's um, Mauro Cardenas who lives in San Francisco who was published in, in US uh, publishing houses. There's Juanico Ojeda, there's uh, Maria Fernanda Ampuero. And there's a number of great poets who have, who have been translated uh, like um, Jorge Carrera Andrade, uh, he's been translated into a number of languages. Adalberto Ortiz, uh, Stupiñan Vaz. But I would just go on on a, on a Google search and type in Ecuadorian writers and, and there's some great stuff in there.
0: And Gabriel, if I could jump back in with your, your grandfather, uh, Uhu Alaman, he was a, a poet and writer as well.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I was lucky enough to to have lived with him when I was small. And he he traveled, he came to live in my my father's house with us um, after he had a stroke, but he brought along his whole library. And his library was all these books signed by what would now be the canon of Ecuadorian literature. So he had books Mm. by Pablo Palacio, who's another great writer. He had books signed by Carrera Andrade. He had books signed by El Fakir. And and, he, and it was also interesting in, in a way that he was from a generation, which uh, was a generation, that I think had the same characteristics in different countries of Latin America that read in other languages through dictionaries. So my, my uncle, my, my grandfather had a, a whole stack of books of, of French poetry and he didn't speak French. He, he read <laughs> the poetry through dictionaries and then he would compare notes with his other poet friends And they would create their own translations, and then when one of them had gone out and knew the language, he would help out. So there's this great thing that I think I learned from a a very young age, that um, anyone can be connected to other traditions, to other literary traditions, even with other uh, languages. because. Dictionaries exist,
3: and and I think (laughs) imagination
2: exists. I'm sure they weren't the most um, perfect of translations, but they brought in uh, an aspect of the vanguard that wasn't there before those translations were done by his generation.
1: We have another question from Dominic. I would like to hear a little more on the question that Oscar raised about how the exploration of darkness within the characters or dramatic situations somehow illuminate your stories. Do you think such illumination is necessary or is it okay to leave the reader in that darkness to dwell on that? Um, Well,
2: they're they're not long, short stories. (laughs) They're, They're actually very, they're not more than eight pages long. So um, I think the reader dwells on, on things that are only um, mentioned or they're brush strokes, or, or there's a much bigger story behind them. And it's only the tip of that story that that is presented in the in the short story. So I think it, it leaves space for the reader to project and, and to think. And, and I think Oscar said it perfectly. There's a lot of layers you can just go into the story um, very and and read it in, in in what's presented at the beginning and find that there's different layers that could give it a different reading that could make it more complex. But um, you can stick only with one of those readings. So so I think that's why I love short stories. There's the possibility of a larger connection with the reader because not everything is there it's it's uh this work between the writer and the reader that creates the story
1: well we are running out of time i'm gonna ask uh, uh oscar dick do either of you have any last thoughts before we close this
0: oh i you know i would just um restate what i said at the beginning i think this is uh it's a fascinating story collection um, again, yeah, it's very short. I think it's only about 100 pages total, but it invites rereading. And there is indeed, they're, they're wonderfully complex. Um, and it also forces you with something I love, something that poetry does. It forces you to slow down. For it, you you will savor it more if you pay careful attention to what you're reading.
3: Yeah, I think that the stories definitely um, bear reading more than once um, in that way. Um, and then I'd say, after you read this, we hope, stay tuned for more of Gabriela's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary Ellen, the other translator of, of some of the stories in this book, Mary Ellen Feeweger, and I have been working on a different collection of Gabriela's story in a different kind of darker, we might say, vein. And I've been working on a novel that she wrote about Paraguay Um, which is um, a country very little represented in literature translated into English. And it's in an entirely different style. So it's so much fun to to see all the different things she can do. Wow.
1: Well, listen, thanks to all three of you ever so much. I mean, this has been such a wonderful and very, very meaningful event to be sure. Uh, City Lights is proud. To have published both family album and Post so well, so thank you, Oscar, for doing the honors tonight. Thank you, Gabriella Aleman, and congratulations on this wonderful new book. Uh, thank you, Dick Cluster. It was great having you joining us as well. Uh, it was a real treat. Uh, I want to note, everyone, uh, please uh, keep in mind. You know, uh, Dick has also translated the works such amazing writers as Pedro de Jesus and Melini Fernandez Pintado, which uh, City Lights has also published. So we've posted links for you in the to explore those titles in the chat function. So, uh, and last but not least, really thanks to all of you in the audience for joining us. As always, you mm-hmm. help complete the circle. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program, an educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. We hope to see you again soon. Gabriella, I'm gonna give you the last word.
2: I just wanted um, to thank Oscar and Dick and, and you, Peter, for putting this together and Stacy at City Lights. Uh, it was lovely, at least to see each other to talk mm. about the book. And, and I hope that people enjoy the stories. So thank you very much for, for putting this together. Thanks for listening
0: to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.